What's your name, boy? Alias. Alias what? Alias anything you please. What do we call you? Alias. Hell, just call him Alias. That's what I'd do. Alias it is. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Hey guys, welcome back to the Blood and Black Rum Podcast. I'm Ryan from ColdSploitation.com and I'm joined by my co-host Martin. How's it going? And we are back with a Western film today. Not a spaghetti Western. Not a spaghetti. No, no. Technically, this is not. Even though it does look a lot like a spaghetti Western film, it is not a spaghetti Western film. It's not Italian made. So... No spaghetti in it. <laughs> uh, but we are, yeah, we, we had promised previously that we were going to do a Western. Uh, we did not uphold our promise a couple for a couple times that we did the episodes. Uh, but we, we definitely are doing a Western today. Yeah. And we're going back to our roots because I don't really think that we've done a Western since probably our first episode. Have we done a no. Western since we did we Day have- of Anger? No, we did not do Day of Anger. No, I, I don't know why I keep Man, thinking. Pride, and Vengeance. I don't know why I keep thinking it was Day of Anger. It's Man, da- Pride, and Vengeance. Yeah. Da- well, because Day of Anger is one we ha- watched just for fun. That's true. Before that's we, true. Yeah. Before we started the podcast. Yeah. And actually, I think that's kind of what got us. Uh, got us looking into doing it and being yeah. being titillated by the possibilities. Yeah. So our first one was Man, Pride, and Vengeance. That's a Italian, a spaghetti western Italian film. Uh, this one is not, although it is one of the. Um, I would say it's one of the more popular Western films of American culture. Um, I don't know about popular. I would say it's recently has gotten um, praise as being a, you know, diamond in the rough. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's a Sam Peckinpah film. Who is most famous for The Wild Bunch. Yep. Um, have you seen The Wild Bunch? I have not. I've seen it once and it was a, quite a long time ago. Um, I think I saw it. It's not like on TCM mm-hmm. uh, when they were and, doing, when they were doing like a uh, western. And he's uh, also famous for more than just westerns too. Yeah. I mean, he did Stray Dogs, mm-hmm. uh, pri- a pretty big film in in the horror realm of you know cult films. Um, you know, and and I think that he has a good track record of being able to do different things yeah. while drunk, <laughs> as I am right now. <laughs> um, so <laughs> that's always a plus as well, that you can direct and, and make good films while being, you know, as, as many people have said about Sam Peckinpah previously, including Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid's own Billy the Kid. Well, it's hard to believe. Let's say it's hard to believe that uh, everyone else on set wasn't drunk, because if there, if there was actual whiskey in the bottles they're drinking from, uh, everyone on set should have been smashed. Yeah, I would, <laughs> I would say so. I mean... In Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Oh, I was say, uh, there's a scene where James Coburn, when he's in the bathtub with the the ladies of distinguished character, you know, <laughs> yeah. that literally looked like it was just like a, the camera was accidentally rolling, like when he's like, yeah, you and know, James Coburn was is just, just like, yeah, whatever. He's yeah. just drunk, you know. It's a fun time. Flicking a titty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, I mean, it has a lot of whiskey in it. 
and it ha- and it it I will say from experience it looks like authentic whiskey. It looks like authentic rye whiskey. It's very brown in color, and that that looks like rye whiskey to me. Yeah, like someone just yeah home like home distilled. Just yeah, like- yeah, exactly. I, I will say that you know before we get into talking about the movie itself, uh, watching westerns like this really gets me drinking whiskey. It is it, drinking whiskey and chewing on a cigar. Really chewing on that cigar because all of these films, if, if they share any one thing in common besides the mesas of like New Mexico and things like that, it's that they're always sharing a unlabeled bottle of whiskey and they've always got a not very thick, you know, it's, it's a nice little cigarillo style cigar. And it's very attractive to me. I can understand why they do those sort of like, uh, now they have like those instant uh, R's for well, yeah, instant <laughs> R's and like the advertisements for like don't you know don't have smoking in movies. It's like well, in, in westerns it was pretty attractive to smoke well, the cigar. To be, and well, say, to be fair, just from you know media in general, um, they they make you know vices like drinking and smoking look so cool. I mean, when you see Sean Connery for the first time in Doctor No, when he's you know doing his famous introduction of pulling out his very fine looking cigarette case and pulling it out and you know tapping it and he's like going to light it and like who are you and he's like name's bond james bond it's like oh yeah that's you know like it's pretty cool it's, it's like you know uh spike spiegel and like cowboy bebop and like lupon and them and like the anime it's like god they make smoking look so fucking cool i know it's like the way they're like oh yeah oh yeah, yeah you know. it's hard too because i've seen the the entirely opposite end of the spectrum of how it's not so glamorous and cool well, to have been smoking for the rest of you know for your entire life. Well, and, no, say, same here. And, and it's but hard, it's, but it's I know. Well, no, because it's like you understand it, but it's like you look at it like you know through the you know through know. The, the veneer, and you're like oh. It's and just... also, you know, when we're talking about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, 1973, smoking wasn't really a thing that you would say like look down on, or no. you would say like. You know, well, that's dangerous. At that time, it was really like push it, push it, push it, push it, push it. You know, well, by that time, you couldn't advertise on TV. That's true. Yeah, you couldn't advertise on TV, but which but is still, funny because was... I was actually the other day watching like a clip from like the ni- like nineteen fifties, and it's from like some game show, and it was a guy, an old man who had almost almost a hundred years old, was on the game show to like they had to find out what secret he had, and the secret was he was there. When Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth, mm-hmm. and on this game show, it's sponsored by Winston. All like the tables have Winston on it, and everyone there except this old man, like the host, and like the people who are guessing the answers are smoking cigarettes. Like got ashtrays right there. Like yes, uh, uh, what's this uh, um secret that you have here, sir? Oh, you know, you know, hey, have a Winston. You know, do they like name drop it too? Were they like? You know, oh, what are you smoking over there? Oh, Winston's, Winston's, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, they didn't, but you could tell just from like the advert. They had know. infiltrated that show. It was literally <laughs> on, like on, like you know, like you would see, like, like you know, when you're watching, <clears throat> excuse me, on TV, like a baseball game, you see in like the back, you know, background behind home plate, like Pepsi. Oh, the, and, yeah, all the advertisements. Yeah, yeah. WB Mason. Yeah, no, it's Winston cigarettes. Well, that's interesting. I mean, <laughs> at least in when you get into like westerns, there's uh, they're unlabeled. 
There, you know, there's no like Jack Daniels label on this whiskey. There's no. I don't think Jack Daniels at that time would be getting shipped out of Tennessee all the way out no. to like New Mexico. <laughs> no, and that was the question I had for like uh, not only Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, but other Western films and and other shows that you watch, like Helen Wheels, as well. Like it takes a lot from you know these Western style shows, especially American Western styles. Um, with all of the whiskey drinking, and it's like, who was manufacturing this whiskey at that time? Like, when you watch these movies, like this one whiskey bottle to one person, where the fuck was all this whiskey coming from? Somebody was making it. I, I, you know, I wish it was like that now. It was probably like a dollar a whiskey bottle. Well, it'd be expensive. Back yeah, then. I guess so. Yeah, I, I did find it, um a nice little touch that there was one guy drinking beer from a. Glass which, that was nice, yeah. Which, I did which, notice that which too. Would be you know, was um you know a rarity because you know that's why you see them always drinking whiskey because whiskey's you know distilled, so you don't have to worry about it going bad. Beer, yeah, you know you can't. So yeah, especially w- during that time period, you know there's no cold transportation, so you're not gonna you know be able to have like Schlitz bring his yeah. beers. You know <laughs> that was interesting because he was enjoying a nice cold lager and it was you know. Everybody I'm sure it wasn't cold. It's probably <laughs> it was like right. sawdust. Yeah. <laughs> sawdust basically at the bottom and uh, but yeah, no, that was great. Alright, uh let's take a break real quick. We are gonna diverge away from Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid for a second. Talk about the beer that we got on the show today. Um I've already had three glasses of uh whiskey. Tin cups. Tin cup whiskey, uh which I had to have because I'm very influential based on what I'm watching. Um, if I'm watching, let's say I'm watching a Hammer horror film, I'm going to be drinking red wine with that because that's what they're always drinking in, like goblet style red wine. You know, why, why haven't we done a Hammer horror film yet? We should at some point. We'll do one. But but that's what I'm always drinking when I watch a Hammer horror film. Now, if I'm watching a Western film, I'm going to go right to my whiskey. And and luckily I had a new one. So I went to Tin Cup. I had three tin cups full of whiskey now, where and is that distilled? I have no idea, to be honest with you. I, I just received this tin cup um, for Easter, technically. My wife got it for me for Easter. Um, I'd never had it before, but it is very good. I've never heard of it. Very smooth. It comes literally with a tin cup shot. I, I didn't even bother trying it. I know, because you, you just can't drink whiskey no, straight not, like that. Not anymore, really, no. I love as much it. As much as I do, like... like Rye whiskey I can tolerate more because I like the pepperiness. And, yeah. But, like, I don't know. It's like I like it, but at the same time, it's such a, like, grimace and, like, the alcohol like burn. I don't, with it. I don't I, know. I, 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 just, I just can't do it It, it might anymore. be like um, I I don't know, like a, a choir taste. Like, you just you continue to do it until you really get into it. Well, I've had an experience with vodka one night true, that left true. me blowing out the blood vessels in both my eyes from throwing up so hard. So, to me, I think I think alcohol like like liquor like that, just, you know. That's why I'm, I'm like just the beer guy. I I find like straight whiskey and even most like I'll have straight Kraken too. Um I find that very relaxing to me. So, if I'm sitting down at night and I'm like watching TV and I'm getting ready for bed, I'll have the straight Whiskey. I was, I was gonna say rum. Rum's a, a, that's one liquor. I, rum's one liquor I could drink straight fine, because it's just like such an easy, you know, sweet. Yeah, you uh, know. especially like a Kraken Black Rum is very easy to drink. It's very you know, smooth and 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 I'll I'll sit down and just drink that while I'm watching TV or something. And that I'll tell you what, 
I don't need no, you know, Z, uh, NyQuil stuff. Uh, just give me that, and it puts me right out. Because I'll, I'll fall asleep within, like, 30 minutes of having that. Like, if I finish it... I'll, I, I've had times where I've had a cup in my hand. I fall asleep. <laughs> I wake up. I'm like, well, I still got a little bit in there. I'm going to finish this. I'll finish it and go to bed. And, and you know, no matter how much is in the glass. So It's called alcohol. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. But no. I shouldn't divulge my vices right on the podcast like that. Well, Especially when anybody can work from work can just listen in, I guess. But There's but, nothing against the law about being a drunk. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> it's if you're, if you're belligerent, then the, yeah, the, you got a yeah. problem. I'm fine with it. <laughs> but on the show today, I did get a special beer for us to try. Um We've talked about this brewery before because it is on the upper echelon of price range. Uh, Ballast Point is is the brewery we're talking about. Um, we don't get it that often, primarily because it's like fucking $18 for a 12-pack. No, it's more than that. Probably more than that. It's 21 Especially with the tax and bottle deposits was, and everything when I like went that. To, when I was at Price Chopper the other day, when I bought a 15-pack of Founders Delicious PC Pills, which we've reviewed before yep, on here. 15-pack, right? Yep. Yeah. Way to do it. Um, well, it's a bargain, too. It's only 16 I, bucks for... I do so. like the new tradition of doing 15-packs. That is one of my favorite... Well, I wish I... they would just go like go to the 18. Sure. Just sure. go, go sure. to 18. I'm sure we'll see that in the future. Like, like what's next? We're not going to do a 30-pack. We're going to do a 27. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. But no, so... But no, I got that. But as I was looking around, I did see, you know... I was just looking to see what the beer was coming out, because I really haven't bought any craft beer for, like, couple of months just been drinking miller light for the most part because it's just easy refreshing and been kind of bummed out like with the kind of trends with craft beer when it comes to like the specialties except there's two that's coming out soon sometime this month with one of our favorite brewers in genesee coming out with a cream ale sampler pack and a ruby red colch and i cannot wait for that and when it does come out trust us it'll be on the podcast but getting sidetracked when I bought the Founders PC Pills, I was just looking around, and they had a couple of ballast points, like their Session, one of their Sculpins, and um, another like variety on the Sculpin, and they had like a 6 and 12 pack, and it was $13 for the 6 pack and $21 for a 12 pack. That's yeah. acid, that's un- ridiculous. And that's what it was for the 6 pack that I got today, uh, $13 for the 6 pack. Um, it, it, what we're drinking is their new mango session IPA. It's called the, um, even keel, even keel. And it's a mango session IPA. That's only 3.8%, which uh, especially if you're going to pay $13 for is kind of a interesting idea that you're going to charge $13 for a 4% IPA. You're going to pound yeah. I mean six six beers at at four percent is really you're not getting a whole lot for your your money's worth. It, it, you know, because in general, like if you're gonna buy a six pack or even like a four pack, you're expecting something to be a little bit like a heavy hitter. Something that you're gonna wanna like just savor and enjoy. Right. right. I, I think that even keel is a little interesting, especially at its price point. I mean, ballast point in general for us is way overpriced. I don't understand the idea behind why they price their their beer the way they do. Um, it doesn't even seem to matter about exporting 
because from California. you know ours is from California. Obviously, it has to travel cross country. But I've talked to other people in different states in Florida. Same price there. It's very expensive, and I don't really understand the reasoning behind it. It's it's. I think it just it's has like, to do with the it, name. It's, it's just, well, it's like, it's like the same thing with Stone. Like I like Stone's beer. You know, even though all they really do is like IP, like IPAs to hell. But I like Stone Stone's beer. I'll never buy it though, because I'm not spending twenty one dollars on a fucking twelve pack of beer. Sorry, right. I'm just. There's no like. I don't have or like. Because I know, like, Stone's really big about, like, we brew, like, special beer. It's, you know, real beer. It's not fizzy piss water. It's like, well, good for you. I'm not paying $21. Sorry. I, like, I, you know, drink beer to relax and also enjoy it and enjoy the different varieties. I don't want to, like, be like, when I buy a pack of beer, whether it be six or a 12 pack, be like, well, I can only make, I got to make sure I enjoy every, you know. It's like yeah. the same thing why I don't buy, like, Ben and Jerry's ice cream. I'm not spending $6 on a pint of ice cream. Love ice cream. I, I can't, you know, bring myself to do it. Because it's like, you gotta, you know, if I eat it in a city, I'm going to feel really extra sad. Because, you know, but this isn't even that good. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I'm a little bit disappointed with the mango even keel. Um, Obviously, it's a session IPA, so it's meant to be sessionable. It is light. However, I think that it's it has very light. It's yeah, it's it's, it's pretty very light. It's yeah. I mean it's, it is hoppy, but it's also pretty watery. I think it has a strange aftertaste to it. In this case, I don't know if it's because of the canning process, but it does have a sort of a tinny uh, t- metallic. I would, I would say like it. I would can say like it's a tinny wheat taste because you do get that weedy like sensation from it, but it's also that tin ha- that has seeped into it. So I don't know if that's, you know, just because of the canning process. Maybe we have a an old can of this, which I don't believe that's true. Um, but for whatever reason, it does have a, I would, I would call it almost an unpleasant aftertaste. It's not something that I, and the mango's very, very mild. It is mild, yeah. I mean, I get it. I I do taste the mango. It's not in the same sense where you have some of those orange-style IPAs that really get blended Mm. in with the citrus flavor of hops in general. Um, The mango does come out in this, but I would say that I'm, I'm, for the price range of what Ballast Point is generally considered to be, I'm unimpressed with this. I wouldn't go out of my way to get a Ballast Point even keel just because of the namesake of it. No, this this is even pushed me further away from their brand of like I, of like in being like i want to you know i think that ballast point does do some interesting things they have their pineapple sculpin which is pretty interesting habanero. uh the habanero sculpin is very interesting not for everybody um, i still have one of them oh you do really it sits in my pantry it, see, like the habanero <laughs> is definitely a an experiment to try but again, it's not for everybody, and it's not for like just regular like sitting down. I'm gonna have a habanero sculpin. It's hot. It's it's just it's not. I wouldn't say it's pleasant. Like you're not gonna sit down and have a relaxing time with a habanero sculpin. It's more of like an experiment. Like I'd like to try this. I do like hot things sometimes. Let's put it in beer format. But yeah, you're right. Like you're a perfect example of you know you have it sitting around still because. You have to be in the right mindset, the right mood for it. Like, I'll never be in the right <laughs> mindset and mood for it. So that was just, you know. You do have to push yourself through it and be like, I'll let me try that habanero sculpin again. But 
I do. I actually saw somebody who tried it just the other day and was like, not for me. And I like spicy things too. It's just yeah. like, I, I guess when it comes to like, it's a, overwhelmingly spicy. It's though. like, I just when it comes to a beer, which we did review that for the podcast. Yeah, too. We did do it. Um, I just like, it's just like something I don't want. I don't want like to sit down and be like, I want to, you know, after I eat, you know, some tacos and enchiladas, I also want to have fire coming out of my ass from my, the beer I drink. Yeah. No, please just give me like a nice yeah. Dos Equis with a lime. I have Thank had you. some good, hot, spicy beers. I've had some jalapeno stouts and things like that that are interesting. That's a little bit different because jalapeno is like it, not that spicy. Yeah. It's spicy. Like if you're not, if you like spicy food, jalapenos aren't really that spicy, um, especially if they're like mixed with something. Um, habanero is different though. It's you know, that'd be like, hey, you want to try a ghost? You know, ghost chili pepper stout? And no, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's <laughs> overwhelming. Yeah, for sure. I I just I mean, this is probably I would say like the fifth or sixth unique uh, Ballast Point beer that I've tried. And I just can't get over the price range of them in comparison to the quality of the beer. It just doesn't add up for me. So Not like that, like I said, I just bought Founders PC Pills, a nice hoppy Pilsner. It's five percent alcohol. It's enjoyable, sessionable. Sixteen bucks for a fifteen pack. Founders makes great, goddamn, really good beer. It's great. I gotta try. We gotta try their premium lager that they have come out with too that recently. That's gonna be coming in fifteen packs. Just gotta hope to find it around here. Yeah, look forward to that too. All right, let's get into Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. I'm really excited for this. Uh, it's one that we, you know, I know that you've been talking. You've talked to me about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid a lot previously. I have. Um, you have recommended it. I had never seen it before. Now. I know this is your one of your you know go to Western films. So why don't you explain the plot of the film? Well, it's a simple, romanticized telling of the story of Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. How they were friends, and how Pat Garrett is going to be—he's now been elected sheriff, and he's not no longer an outlaw, and he's coming for Billy the Kid, who is still an outlaw. And that's all there is to it. Yeah, it's a really simple premise, actually. Um, one that I would say Sam Peckinpah attempts to flesh out throughout the film in small details. Because this film is one that trades off between the two storylines. It trades off between, you know, we, we see Billy the Kid and his ventures and pursuits and, you know, escapes trying to get away from um, Pat Garrett. And then we see Pat Garrett on the other side of things. As the sheriff trying to rein in Billy the Kid and try to figure out where he's gone. Um, and we get like two sides of that story. So it's literally like how the title suggests split between the two. That's actually in the title suggests from me like coming in as a layman, not really knowing anything about Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. It almost sounds like they're together. You know, they're, like they're riding together. They're they're both, you know, running from the law or whatever, whatever they have going on. Uh, but in this case, they're really separated. You know, if you think about some other films that have and in the title, they're together and you kind of... Hooch and Turner! Yeah, exactly. Or it's like, uh, it's it, you know, it's like a buddy comedy almost. But in this case, what you expect is a buddy comedy and you get the opposite of that, which is they're <laughs> actually... And, and really, in, in the film's reality, 
at some point, Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett, they were together. And Billy the Kid is almost like a, um apprentice of what Pat Garrett used to be. So it's really interesting, morality-wise, that now those tables have kind of flipped on themselves. And you have Billy the Kid, who's really just an outlaw, and Pat Garrett, who's turned from outlaw to law enforcement. And all they basically say in the beginning, too, when... Uh... Pat, you know, runs into Billy at Fort Sumner and tells him, you know, like, hey, the governor wants you out of the territory. And he goes, are you asking or are you telling me? And he goes, I'm asking now, but in five days, I'm telling you and I'm coming for you. And he goes, well, I never thought I'd see Pat Garrett become, a, you know, the lawman. And he goes, I'm just on the, you know, says, you know, I'm the same man I was before. I'm just on the right side of it now. You know, so he's basically saying, I'm no different than you, and I haven't changed at all, but it's, you know, it's this badge that's going to protect my ass. And that also works as a threat, too, because as we find out throughout the film, you know, they used to ride together. So Billy the Kid knows Pat Garrett's expertise, and he knows how good he is with a gun, and, you know, that's all important within a Western film, is how good are you in a draw, and how good are, you know... Obviously, all of those factors come into play. Um, so it's also a threat in saying, like, you know, we used to ride together and now I'm on the right side of the law and you are not. So, <laughs> you know, turn yourself in or I'm coming for you. Well, he's not, he didn't say turn himself. Yeah, basically. He says go yeah. to Mexico. <laughs> basically, like, yeah. yeah, make a run for it. But um, Which I, I will say that this the, this isn't a new concept either in westerns. Uh, Pat, Pat, there's been several Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid films. Um, it's like it's one of the most probably popular and vi- visited like historical because it is based on actual historical events in American history, and it's up there with probably I would say the, the one more prevalent would be uh, tomb like the uh, Tombstone with Wyatt Earp. And Doc Holliday and the OK Corral. Mm-hmm. You know, that's been done a th- million times, too. Most famously in Tombstone. Um, so they're not really breaking any new ground here. It's just, you know. And interestingly, too, uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, they also appeared in a movie three years previously, which was called Chisholm, which had John Wayne in it, and is effectively almost kind of a prequel to... Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, in that it tells the story of Chisholm and how they use, he, Chisholm, the, the cattle rancher, uses Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And that comes up in play. Well, in, it's an unintentional yeah, prequel. Yeah, it's it not, is. They're, yeah, not, it's they're not, not associated, but right. that one's about the Lincoln County Wars, the, the ranch wars, um, which I haven't seen Chisholm, but... But that's what, you know, that part's about. This takes place after the... Yeah, and, and this effectively, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting because I don't think that Sam Peckinpah really meant it to be, you know, what would be considered like a sequel to Chick, to Chisholm. But it does kind of work out that way because there is a lot of references to Chisholm in this film of the cattle ranchers, um, of the power that they hold over government. Um, and that, and that kind of comes up in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid as sort of like a secondary plot point, but it doesn't really, you know, become the main focus of the film. It's kind of interesting though, how those, those two relate to each other, even though that's really not something that either film meant to do. But, uh, I, I think that the plot of 
Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is simplistic enough that it works. And also, um, sometimes a little bit, I would say, frustrating. I think that the frustration for me comes in uh, with Pat Garrett's character, actually, who I think um, is really an interesting guy and played pretty well. But I think the frustration comes into the fact that his morality is sort of skewed for me. I don't know that I understand exactly why he does the things that he does in the film. Um, it's mainly just because he wants to secure his future and his wealth. You know, like he tells Billy in the beginning when he's sitting down having a drink with him, before, you know, before he tells him I'm coming after you, he says, look, I, you know, I plan to live to be old. To be, which is funny because he's played by James Coburn and this is already old. Yeah, <laughs> you know, true, true. He's like, I plan to be old and gray. It's like, James, you're already old and gray. You yeah, know? So, that's not your fault. But he's like, I plan to be old and gray and have a shit ton of money. Yeah. And that's, that's why he's doing it. He's doing it because um, there's a bounty on Billy. He wants the money. He wants to make sure that you know he's got a, a future, basically, safe. Because when you're an outlaw, you don't really have any future you're kind of just going with the flow it's dated you know day to day um anything can happen to stop you know stop you from having life i mean grant being a lawman too is also dangerous because as you see throughout the film uh people don't like the law right you know the townsfolk they don't like the law they don't trust them yeah um and they're constantly everyone that uh pat garrett runs into you know tells them you know he's a coward and you know he's a betrayer you know he even his wife you know says they um that he's becoming a no good gringo like and he's become dead inside because of you know his just blind uh willingness to hunt down his friend just to try to get some money yeah i think that um what can not confuses me, but I think what gets muddled in the proceedings is that in some ways he is, he does have a sense of like morals and ethics to himself. Like he doesn't accept a bribe from the cattle ranchers, like the governmental, um, with what the, I guess the wanted, um, bounty that they're, they're putting on Billy the kid. So he doesn't accept the $500 that they want to offer him. In order to bring him down. Actually bring him in really. They don't want him dead. They want him brought into justice. But he doesn't accept that. But he also does seem to have sort of a interior moralistic attitude. That he's got to bring Billy the Kid down. Despite the fact that he was once in that same situation as how Billy is is acting. You know he, he rode with Billy. He was sort of a mentor to Billy. And so... He was in that same place before. So I do find the, I guess his actions a little frustrating uh, in that we, Sam Peckinpah doesn't really go into detail about that. But I guess that's also part of the, the compelling mystery of Pat Garrett at the, you know, at the surface level. We really don't see everything that he has going on underneath him that drives him to do what he does. And it's kind of like that mystery that keeps the film rolling as we go through all of this, as Pat Garrett, you know, confronts a bunch of 
people that Billy the Kid knows and and has uh, been in contact with. You know, it kind of drives the film forward. I think that's interesting. Uh, I, I do appreciate his cold, dead, uh, deadpan, just like, uh, del- not delivery, because Coburn does have some, you know, quips and funny lines, but for the most part, just seeing how cold and calculating he is, and like, and they're not sh- really, they're not telling you, but they're just mainly, they're just showing you, like his, you know, him tracking him down and things that he's doing to, you know, track him down. Yeah. I think Um, the film gets a lot of mileage out of just him being like a very calculated and, and almost not, I I don't want to say demented, but uh, certainly someone who understands like the psyche of, of uh, human emotion. So he kind of sits him down and almost, it's almost like a torture device in itself. But you can also tell too, though, that he like, you know, kind of regrets what he does because the opening is, set you know years like when pat garrett is you know shot down killed and the people that shoot uh shoot and kill him you know berate him for killing you know billy the kid and you can tell he's upset and pissed off about it because you know he uh might possibly regret that i mean that part to me has always been kind of just muddled just because the The opening scene yeah i agree i actually thought we were watching like a clip of um like something cut together because it seems very disparate at the beginning of the just i mean you can tell like because it's cutting from present day till when of pat garrett's death of getting uh shot and killed and cutting to you know Fort Sumner and seeing Billy the Kid and, like, him about to begin the chase. But just the dialogue that goes on between there is kind of, like... like So what was the point of showing that? Like, you couldn't... Like, if... It doesn't really make sense. If anything, it should have been showed at the end. Like, after we see, you know, Pat at the end, like, rocking in the chair. And after, like, the guy, like, basically comes to verify that Kid's dead and he rides off. You know, they could have, like, you know, faded and then show him, like, you know, in his years of retirement... You know, like, do I regret it? I don't know. And then show that scene of him getting gunned down by, you know. Well, I agree with that, too, that it would have been, it would have worked better towards the end of the film. I will say, like, coming into this, not having seen it before, the ending was very, um, or I'm sorry, not the ending. The beginning was very, like, confusing to me as a, you know, as a watcher, just not knowing what was happening at all. Uh, As the film progresses, it does make sense. But I think it works better at the end of the film because when we do see Pat Garrett finally gun down Billy the Kid, there is a lot of remorse there in that scene. It's a very quiet mm. scene. Most of the time in this film, Bob Dylan's score or at least some sort of instrumental is playing in the background. In that scene, it's very quiet. Um, and it's very it almost plays out very somberly. As well, though, he, well, that too. And um, I can't remember his name. is. uh Oh, um, you know, his partner? Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, it's Pace or Poe. Poe. Poe, yeah. yeah. Poe. Yeah, Poe, um, he says, you know, after, uh, you know, after Garrett kills him and he's lying there, he says, I want, you know, his trigger finger cut off and sent back to Lincoln so it's posted. And as he's, like, going to do that, you know, Garrett, you know, wraps him upside the head with his revolver to make sure, like, you know, that they don't desecrate his body. Um... 
so you know that sh- that shows you know yeah I his, his, it, the the turmoil that he kind of feels about what he's done. That last scene is absolutely you know it's really interesting how it plays out because it you know when you think about a western film you think about the film playing out at the end towards like some immense climax where come to terms with it. In this case, there is no crosswords, there is no climax. He has the opportunity. And he sits down on a bench outside of the house so that he can allow he's taking him down. It's a very somber moment. It's you know, it, it on on the surface, like a very serious purpose. You know, he's he sits down, you can see actually, and it's it's uh, I would say film, he's kind of like a I wouldn't say comical, but he, he does have his his own sense of like humor but humorous. And in this in this part of the film, he really does not have any of that. He there is that sort of inevitable sense that like you know, it, it, this has to happen. And, you know, if you think about some of the other spaghetti westerns that you see, there is, like, this ridiculous, like, face-off at the end of the film. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, for instance. That's great. Uh, I'm not saying it's not great, but I'm saying, like, you know, really built up, almost exaggerated face-off, wherein Pat Garrett and Billy, you know, underwhelming... But still, well, the face off isn't, but the build of Garrett, you know, sneak through, you know, the buildings, like, track him down and find, you know... That's that's where the the build up and that standoff is is uh, as he's like going through the buildings looking and as you know Poe is looking you know at kid but he can't bring himself to shoot him as the other deputies like yelling at him like you're a coward for not you know doing it you know it's very you know but it's all that's all tense and then when you know then when Billy finally turns around he sees Garrett there and then he just plugs him yep. It's, it's it's which again that's another as I will say too another thing that actually kind of go against uh, how you said you think uh, Garrett's morals are twisted. He doesn't re- you don't really get to hear expressed, but you can, again it's all visual because after he shoots Pat, uh, after he shoots Billy, he shoots the mirror. Yep, because it's it's his reflection. And I think that says a lot because he's like he's you know. Conflicted about he's you know damn like you know damn Billy damn myself you know damn us all yep you know I think that that's all really good I think it's all yeah, I agree I I think I, James Coburn's really good in this I think that's a really strong moment within the film some of my um, critiques of the film was that some of the scenes really seem um, as you mentioned previously like some of the the scenes where he goes to the prostitute the terms of Western world um, you'll like, yeah, literally, like, it's like, oh, like, as he's like, I was like, it's fine, kind of, I'm not saying I'm fine, uh, the one prostitute, and he, like, beats her, and, you know, is about ready to have sex. Then with, like, the six other prostitutes yeah. break in, and then you got Dylan's like, la, 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 you know, taking James uh, Coburn's clothes off, and he's like, woo, it's just like, like, I think they're sitting in the bath, and he's just, like, flicking the chick's tit. Yeah. Just, like, flicking her titty, just, woo, you know, it's a, like, like thing, you know, he says... Now, I will take Ruthie. I think her name was Ruthie. Ruthie Ann. Kind of keeps like pressing on him. He's like, "You want another? You want anybody else?" And he's like, "Just as long as Ruthie is up six people." So obviously, that's that's six times the price. <laughs> if I was James, sorry, one's enough. That's all I can afford. Well, he's got five hundred dollars coming his way. That's true. So, that's well, true. <laughs> yeah, like is this like there are. It's almost like it's the seventies now. Here's some booby. The film where they really they don't add a lot of range to what's actually maybe flesh out the character a little bit more but i think it's also too because it's it's, it's the film's sense of time is kind of 
kind of weird. It doesn't really say exactly, but it's supposed to be a couple of months. Like, that they have to ride horses. So, in that mm. sense, riding horses yeah. to, like, Mexico. Even from New Mexico. Right, exactly. Even from New Mexico. So, I understand that, but I, I guess I just don't really add up to the plot itself. Well, there's... I I would say the main part of the B, just Bob Dylan's character, Alias. True, true. Bob Dylan, um, yeah. His... It's, every scene he's in is just like, why do I need to be here? Just because, oh. Uh, yeah. Well, a lot of it is random, too. Like, his initial... Um, the screen, Randy Wurlitzer's screen, screenplay was already written and done. And then when they were like, had to be like, oh, shit, what the fuck do we do? So they just, you know, scribbled, you know. Yeah. But he's just like, it looks like he's like a blacksmith or something. Like, constantly yeah. flashing to him just looking. Oh, who are you? He's like, Alias. Oh, what's your name? Alias name. Like, uh, between Chris Christopherson as Billy the Kid and the guys that he runs. You know, that whole moment of, like, kind of, like, seriousness and, like, the story that... Yeah. And then, uh, and then Christopherson's just like, I don't know who he is, but he's there that isn't really, like, a main character that we haven't met that much. Like, in some of the later scenes when, you know, has Bob run off and read some cans labels, and he's just like, plums. Baked beans in, in the later scenes. So they, they came up with something like that that was kind of goofy to get them off screen. Like, it's totally pointless. It, it is, yeah. It, 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 I mean, I add some comedy to it. Because Bob Dylan, like a Jimmy Fallon sort of guy. Yeah. In this, you know, where he's like, you know, About he to can break never out. Really... Gotta get out of town. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, I mean, he's not a good actor, but I guess it does. Yeah, that would be And good. to be honest with you, I I thought that. Bob Dylan would make a better Billy the Kid because he literally looks like a kid. Well, he he wanted to be in it because he says he thought he was said he feels like a spiritual reincarnation of Billy the Kid. Makes sense. I mean, which which makes which one does make sense, and two, the film from I believe it was like two thousand eight. I haven't seen it, but I've always wanted to. I'm not there. Mm-hmm. The movie, but and it's basically just about every like Dylan persona ever, like you know, Kate Blanchett's in it as like you know, Dylan going through his rock phase and. You know, there's one like like where it's like a Woody Guthrie inspired one, but there's also one called of this persona is called Billy, where it's set like in the Pat Garrett type time, and which is you know really cool. I, like I said, I always wanted to see that movie just because it's just about all the different personas of Bob Dylan. You know, the man man's like one of the greatest workers of all time. He's the truest carny of them all. He's got gimmicks up the ass. He's con- <laughs> constantly changing and you know involving you know. Was there a Frank Sinatra one? Yeah, that's what he's going through now. No, I know, but I'm at in the film. No, because that was this, that was ten too, years too ago. new. Yeah, um, yeah, but I I think like you know it, it makes sense for Bob Dylan, especially you know to be want to want to be in this film. He had a lot going on with this film. He had to write all the songs for the film. Now you know more about the film than I do. Who really was? The reason why Bob Dylan was writing the the songs for the film because uh, you said Sam Peckinpah really didn't know who Bob Dylan was at this point. No, he didn't know who the hell Bob Dylan was, which is kind of an amazing thing to think of when you think about because by 1973, it's already been ten years into his illustrious music career. Right, you know, being one of the most influential. You know, if he called by at, at the end of this film, if Bob Dylan called it a day, he's like, I'm not doing music anymore. He would still be a legend for all like the works that he's done before then. Um, I believe it was a studio call. Studio wanted him. What just wanted him to do the soundtrack 
And it wasn't really common at that point, right? Bob Dylan hadn't really done soundtracks no, he, yeah. previous to that. No, I mean, he, he was basically just a folk artist at that point. No, you're not, no. He wasn't just a folk artist. What? See, that's where you're... No. <laughs> no. No, no, no. Now you're being ignorant. Why? You're I mean, what, he was a folk artist. No. He was a rock... Folk. Uh, <laughs> did folk. Then he, did, he went electric. Yeah. Then he went back to more a little folky. Then he did country. So, so but yeah. Now he's getting, he's still, this is kind of, you know, I would say more on his, you know, country. He played with the yeah, band. Yeah, country. Yeah. Um. Yeah, no, he's not folk art. That's, no, that's what I'm saying. He's the, give, at, he'll do, you know, like, he'll do cocaine a little bit after this. Then he'll find Jesus. Then he'll go back to doing cocaine. Then he'll go back to being acoustic. Then he'll do blues music, and then he'll do what he's doing now, Sinatra stuff. <laughs> like, he's constantly evolving. Um, yeah, so um, Dylan actually composed Knocking on Heaven's Door for this film. Yeah. Even though it's used, not n- never in its entirety, but it's used like probably like five times throughout this film, right? I, I would say... Three or four. In, yeah. in, in, cert- in different types of circumstances like some some of it is just like the tune like the instrumental version oh, the of so- it the song itself's not even that long on the, right. I, on, the on the album it's only yeah 220 i think that which, uh, is, which is amazing too because i mean being a huge dylan fan myself if you ever hear him sing knocking on heaven's door it's never the same uh lyrics He's constantly like he. Yeah. I, I'm sure when he originally wrote it, and recorded, he probably had like 20 different verses for it, and so uh, that's just like an always something interesting. I always found. And not only that too, I just find it interesting too. It's one of the most covered songs in like the history of record modern day recording music, and it's just this little two like it's not even one of my favorite Dylan songs. It's not even close. And it's just like one little two minute, twenty minute song. I was in a film that not a lot of people saw. I would say that it works really well in this film, though. No, I think it's great. I think it sound. I love his soundtrack. I his soundtrack to this film is absolutely amazing. If you ask me. Well, I, while we're getting into soundtrack, we we could talk about it a little bit. Um, I posed you a question, Bob Dylan or Ennio Morricone, for a western soundtrack, and you didn't really answer the question. You just said you loved Bob Dylan's soundtrack well, in this I, film. I would probably say Ennio Morricone because he's a actual film he actually composes music for um for film you know but i would say what dylan did here works really well and fits the film perfectly it's like i said it's really great. the final theme that's played in this and you get to hear it in the film um at the end when uh billy's settling down at uh, Fort Sumner at the you know one place, and he's getting ready to lie down. Ben, you hear you know the little pan flute and the twelve string guitar and all that. That's awesome. The final theme is absolutely amazing. It's great. I think you know that if they like ever played that over like a tense like standoff, you know it fit you know beautifully. But like it's absolutely great. I can't praise it enough. The main title theme for the film, Billy, uh, which is just the instrumental one, not the one where he's got the actual lyrics to it. And that's at the opening of the film where, you know, you see it and you hear, like, you know, the nice, you know, maracas playing and, you know, it's great. I, I can't I can't recommend it enough. Just 
It's his most underrated album, if you ask me, by like a mile. It's an absolutely, it's a gem. And I think the, his score for this is great. It's absolutely great. Works perfectly for the film. Um, and it was really great. Well, I'll be on the opposite spectrum of that. Not not so much that I don't think that the score is good. I th- I do think that the score is good. Um, I, I will admit I'm not a Dylan fan. But I do think that some of the score works really well. Knocking on Heaven's Door, for one, uh, being used throughout the film does add a lot of emotional depth to it. Um, there is that scene that I'm thinking of where... Um, he uh, Slim Pickens is killed. Yep, and it's really kind of random. I mean, within the film itself, that Slim Pickens gets killed, and we don't really, as a character, he's not really important to the film at all. He's not for yeah, but at the same time, they they use when they use knocking on Heaven's door. It's mainly just for like a like a m- emotional heft. Like because the other time they use it too is when the um, and I can't remember the man's name, but. The one that uh, Garrett first deputizes, you know, in the bar, um, you know, he, he runs into Billy at the trading post and, you know, they have a standoff and which I do find that standoff to be great, too, because one, the family from the trading post is watching like it's high entertainment. Yeah. Like, I wonder who's going to win, you know, and um, I think I, I just love that, like, kind of banter between him and, you know, Billy, because Billy's like, you sure you want to do this? And he's like, yes, I think so. And he's like. Think of anything else to do? He's like, I think this is the only way. He's like, all right, let's take ten paces, you know. And it's just great watching him walk out there and count that, and you know, seeing Billy the bastard that he is, you know, not even take. He just turns around instantly, waits for him to turn around, and shoots him. Yep. You know, and they play knocking on heaven's door again, which he's a minor character and, um, not very important to the film at all. But I think I almost think it's it's more just kind of. And this may be me reading a little bit more too deep into it. I think it's more about the care, like bit, like in those scenes, it's about Billy and Pat when they're playing. It's more like about them marching ter- towards their own death. Not that it's supposed to be played for like the emotional, you know, like oh these two people, you know, Slim Pickens died. No, no one wants to see Slim Pickens die. You know, I don't think it's because of that. I think it's more like it's more of the emotional weight of Pat, like just knowing ha- that uh, they're they're heading yeah. into a, like a territory that where they can't come back from. yeah 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 i get that i mean i think it does work that way i will say that i i wish that as we talk about like ennio morricone he does uh, compose for film um with bob dylan's score it sometimes it does seem to be used a little randomly sporadically well and, and that, that has to be do with the film's troubled editing right process yeah um now, say if, like, Martin Scorsese was, like, allowed to kind of, like, you should do this and do that. I would guarantee it'd be probably, like, the most perfectly placed because that man's got the most brilliant touch ever when it comes to, like, taking, like, pop music, like, you know, like a Stone song or, like, a George Harrison song or, you know, what or Dylan song or what have you. It, like, always puts it in his films in the right place. It's, like, always on, so on point. Uh, I think if, you know, he were to, like, have his, like, own, like, involvement, like, yeah, he probably could do it better, but... Um, cause like I said, like the, t- like when the prostitutes come in, like that whole scene's weird and then they play, you know, um, Billy, like, the song's called Billy Surrenders, but it's not on the actual soundtrack of, you know, the la 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 la. Right, yeah. Like that, I, that, that, like, that's like out of place and weird, but when like, we actually do get the scene in the beginning where Pat chases Billy down and gets him to surrender and they play that, I think that works, you know, really good. It's kind of goofy, but I think it works really well. 
I think like the cantina theme, like anytime they're in the cantina and you hear like, you know, the instrumental uh, playing there, it works great and, it's, and it works really well. And I think it's really, um, really good. They also play that too, though, when um, Bill and uh, the other uh, deputy gets shot after Billy breaks out, you know. Uh, which is kind of, like, I think that kind of doesn't work as well either. Uh, even though as much like the cantina theme. But when you see Billy breaks out, he's holding the shotgun and, you know, pointing it at him, you know. Because it goes from, like, play, not playing anything, but then as soon as he goes on the steps, you're like, did yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, it, that doesn't work as well. Like So, no, I, I would say Ennio Morricone would be. I think I, I, I prefer a traditional soundtrack as well, but I think that this one works pretty well, too. Just... Like, as you said, the editing for this film in general was a nightmare. Six editors. Yeah. And and, and no, none of the films... Which which we will, I, we will preface this too. We probably should have prefaced it in the beginning. Because if you do know anything about this film, you know there's several different cuts of it. We watched the special edition. This 115-minute cut. Not the theatrical 106 cut or the director's cut, which is 122 minutes. Yeah, and I think even even though there is the director's cut, I think there's still one that was never released that would have been Sam Peckinpah's, like, one that he would would have preferred above all. It's supposed to be that director's the preview cut. Yeah, yeah. But, um, who knows? He probably cut it. Probably, probably more than that. Yeah. And like, and like I was telling you, I watched it. It's been so long since I've seen like the theatrical and. That cut, I remember watching the theatrical cut the first time, being kind of underwhelmed with the film, and then watching the preview version, the director's cut, and being like, oh, that's a lot better, it makes a lot more sense, but to be honest with you, that was like 10 years ago, and I can't really remember what the actual differences were, I kind of just blacked the theatrical cut out of my mind, like I never saw it, so like, I, if you're looking for like, digging into the nitty gritty on that, I, I unfortunately can't recall. I'm imagining that the uh, special and director's cuts, they add the more in-depth scenes of, like, characterization to these, to both Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. So if you cut them out, you have an hour and 45 minute for the regular, you know, standard theatrical cut. You kind of lose a little bit of the morality. Because I, I'm assuming, like, some of the scenes that might have gotten cut are, like, the um, the pre-rape scene with Paco mm-hmm. in the desert. Um I'm thinking that that might have been one that was cut out just because of the almost like it doesn't really fit within the context of the film itself. Like Paco in general is just the, is kind of like a second, you know, he's a, just a Billy's, ter- almost Billy's like, like Mexican friend. Yeah, know, like almost a tertiary character where that that scene itself doesn't really even matter, but it does give Billy a sense of like personal morality. You know, even though he doesn't really go by the definition of like what the law says, he does go by his own sense of morality. Um, and so I guess maybe it just adds a little bit more character to him. So I could see that one perhaps being cut from a theatrical film, but, you know, in the actual director's cut style of it. So um, I, I do think in that in that sense, like some of those scenes are necessary because they do add that sort of, you know, because everybody in a Western has sort of a skewed moral element to them. They, they believe in certain things. They don't believe in other things. You know, the law... Well, and, especially if it's, like, in the vein of a spaghetti western. Exactly. And it's more like the John Ford, like, John Wayne, like, we're gonna get them engines, don't, yeah. you know, the morality's pretty, you know, black and white. And in this film, too, the this film even brings up sort of the morality of, like, what is the law, what does it stand for? Um, 
who who says what the law means. In this case, a lot of the time, it's like politics that the law said, like, you know, certain people who are rich say the law is this thing. But then you have other people who don't really believe that that's the case. And so you have a, a really skewed sense of like what is really encompassed under the law, especially in, in what Westerns would be considered unlawful days. So that's, I think it brings up an interesting point of like, you know, what we think of as a moralistic attitude really wasn't the same as what would have been in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And so, you know, we can't see these characters as black and white, good or bad. Neither of them are. And I think that is also why we get those scenes where both Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett get their comeuppance because, you know, Pat Garrett's not really, I mean, he's on the right side of the law, but he's not really a, like, morally upstanding character either. No. So you ha- you you know you kind of get the best of both worlds in that sense. I think it works well. Um, and you know, coming to th- think about it a little bit more, at an hour and fifty five minutes, I don't think that this film is too long. I think it's probably right around where it needs to be. Maybe could cut out like five or ten minutes of film here and there, but other than that, I think it's right around where it needs to be. It definitely doesn't come to like the same length of time like un almost unnecessary like really drawn out as you know a Sergio Leone film but it does yeah, I think it sits like really well at an hour and 55 minutes at like what it needs to do yeah I agree. so let's talk about because we haven't brought it up yet let's talk about Billy the Kid himself Chris Christopherson yeah let's talk about him the oldest Billy the Kid in like the history of ever yeah, he was, what, 36 years old yeah. when this film was shot? Supposed to be 21 years old as Billy the Kid. So, yeah, it is ironic that he's referred to as a kid throughout the film. Not only that, too, Billy the Kid was, like, five foot seven, like, 130, and Christopherson's, like, all but, like, 6'3", and, like, 220. Yeah. You know, hulking man, with his, like, burly, you know, tobacco-chewing voice. Like, he is an imposing figure all around, yeah. It's it just, I like, I can't get over that. That's like, I don't think Chris Christopherson does a bad job. Um, I'm honestly not the biggest fan of his acting because he's always kind of just. Uh, I think he does the same thing. Just yeah, the same thing, kind kind of wooden too. Yeah. Um. Like I like I think um. One of the scenes that kind of shows like his woodenness at times in the film is uh, when like um. He takes the gun out when he's about ready to break out of jail, and he's you know threatening Billy not to leave. Bell, Bell is his uh, name. Yeah, Bell. Um, yeah, you- and he's like threatening him. He's like, "Come up here," and he's like, "Oh, you won't shoot me in the back." And he's like, "Come on, come on." Like you know that uh, that's really you know really kind of terribly delivered. Um, I mean, I, like, I I think he's he's a mixed bag because, like I said, sometimes too, like when that standoff scene, like where he's you know having the banter with the deputy and um, getting ready to do the pacing out, I think that's well done. I think it's just yeah, I think it really depends on uh, his delivery, theory. like it like uh, on the timing of it too, because you're right, like when he delivers that that line about you know. Did you find? Did you figure out anything else? Like another mm. another yeah. method of dealing with this? And um, I'm a I'm a Losa I'm a Some I'm a Bill. I think his name is or something like that. He says no. 
Billy says, okay, we'll get on with it then. You know, because it, it, at that point, the fate has been sealed. I think, and, I, and think I think it works well. I think his delivery kind of, uh, like, it all depends on the situation. Yeah. Like, I think when he, you know, when he uh, blows uh, Bell away with the dimes loaded shotgun, which I love, I love that part. That's just so great. When he's just like, keep the change. Yeah. You know, that, that, you know, that works perfectly. Um, yeah, because in that in that sense, he's almost emulating like Clint Eastwood too. In some of those like really comical like you better know, make it three, cops. yeah, better make it like three coffins. Yeah, he's he's emulating that in some sense, and I think it works. I I don't think it's I think it's delivered in a very like nonchalant way, and I think that's how Chris Christopherson. It's really... definitely different from the, like Emilio Estevez in Young Guns. He's like, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yeah, when, yeah, you know, he's like, yeah, keep the woohoo, you know. I think I think it really depends, like, because because Christopherson throughout the film is really like nonchalant about things. He's very, and even like when he's delivering that tense scene that you talked about, where he's telling a story about a guy walking ten paces and then turn around and mm. shooting another guy. That's delivered in a nonchalant way that tends that happens to work because of the tense way. Like he's just kind of mm. delivering it. He doesn't want any enunciation. Mm. He doesn't want like an emotional presence to his story. He wants it to be like very, you know melancholy and and delivered in a way that's like not totally different from you know how he would just normally speak so it works then but then in other scenes where he does have to be a little bit more emotionally present that is Mm. really where the the his acting is uh not at its best um i would say some of the scenes like that involve women you know women that he seems to care for uh uh, they're forced because it it's never really apparent how you know how Billy the kid feels about anybody else but really himself I would say uh so like any emotional element to Chris Christopherson's character doesn't come out that well but I do think he's good in this role simply because he is an imposing character um he does have a the very like deep voice that would that works for a Billy the Kid character, like an imposing character? Like, if can you imagine like a Billy the Kid at being at twenty one and like having like a underdeveloped voice and just being like, well, that would probably, yeah, yeah. well, that would probably make more sense. That's what I I'm mean, saying. it would make more sense. So, I'm, but... I mean, I think Emilio Estevez probably did a better job in Young Guns than like if you're going like by yeah historical, you know. But like I said, this is very romanticized, so you right. know, it's yeah, like let's just take like this nice strapping hulking man and. You know, we'll, he'll be our Billy the Kid. It's like, okay. I know. I, one thing that really throws me off about Chris Christopherson is his eyebrows. He really doesn't have one. It's, for me, it's his fucking big ass head and his tree trunk neck. Like, well, I just, just, just want to split it open and see how many rings go. I'm just <laughs> comparing the eyebrows because you know, I have James Coburn whose eyebrows are, you know, kind of bouncing all over the place and then you have chris christopherson who uh, on a close-up you can't even see his eyebrows so that that's definitely like the you know eyebrows versus no eyebrows pitting against each other that should have been the poster artwork (laughs) there's there's no middleman it's all one of my favorite scenes in this film actually involves james coburn getting a shave which clearly and a shave and a haircut which Turns out to be a very poor job because when they come back to him after Giuseppe's done with his haircut, his 
James Coburn's hair is like all over the place, just like <laughs> splayed out all over. Doesn't look like he actually got a haircut, but at least he did get a complimentary whiskey. He looks like he got off like a three night coke bender, like like either with yeah. no sleep. His hair is all just like. Not only that, the poor kid, he tells to go tell his wife and, you know, the deputy some news. Has, oh, has that terrible, like, mid, uh, middle-aged page boy, like, little house on the prairie. Oh, yeah. Cut, like. Yeah, I almost expected him to, like, call him retarded or something. Because he stands there for a second. Because he gives him he gives him some instructions. He's like, go tell this person this and then go to this air, this house. And the kid stands there for, like, a good five seconds thinking about it. And he's like. Then he says the name of the person, then he says the name of the place, and runs off. It's just I think expecting I, him to say, like, well, that little retarded boy is not going to remember what I said. <laughs> you know? I think I think they put that in there to be, like, like more, like, because you can imagine, like, telling something to, like, you know, a kid. They have to be like, go to that. Like, yeah, you know, I guess. They, yeah. You know, when, like, if they just ran off, you know, like, oh, that, that fucker's not going to do what I asked him to do, because he's yeah. not going to remember. Yeah. He's going to run outside and see that new stall the other kids are swinging on and <laughs> Yeah, that's a scene I like. The kids like swinging on the noose, and you know the deputy like giving them the warm side of the door look. Like, yeah, we're gonna hang Barry. Pretty, pretty soon, there's gonna be a dead guy there. I know. Yeah, hopefully he cries for Jesus. <laughs> that is that's fun. <laughs> I will say too. Um. Uh, there is a bevy of. Like western side characters, yeah. um, and they're all very well portrayed. I would say, yeah. There's a lot of uh, side characters that are really, you know, well known within the western world, especially at that time. Um, as we mentioned before, you have um, you have like Chill Wills is in here. Um, you you had said that you recognized um, Slim Pickens. Oh, everyone quite a bit. Uh, he's very well known. Yep, as a you know. And then you have a lot of uh, a host of unknown Mexican cast members who just are there to show their boobs. That's you know that's something that <laughs> that is kind of actually surprising from uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid that it has so many exposed breasts. Well, it's the seven, well, it's the seventies now, so the violence and the cleavage has been up tenfold. Um, which this isn't, you know, um, this is a pretty bloody film. Yeah, they use squibs pretty damn liberally in this. Yeah, which um, it's not like the it, Peck and Paul did it in the Wild Bunch. This you know that's well known for its finale fight scene where there's a lot of death and carnage and blood. Yeah. Um, but it's it's nice to see, like, because you often see, it, especially in the time, even in spaghetti westerns, you know, you know, like see, when you see, you know, Lee Van Cleef get shot, the end, the good and the bad, the ugly. You don't see like, you know, like a bullet hole in blood. He just like kind of clenches his side, and right, falls into the grave. Right. Yeah, a lot of it was just kind of like a imagined thing. Like mm-hmm. you didn't actually see the aftermath. You kind of just saw you. You heard the gunshot. Mm-hmm. You saw the you know grabbing of mm-hmm. the the wound, but you didn't really see any anything between that. But in this case, you do. You you get to see the bright technicolor blood that flies out. Yeah, it's very hyper-realistic. Yeah. Um, Dawn of the Dead levels, um, which it's not bad. I, I, I appreciate it. I think. No, I don't it, mind I, it. I, I definitely think that it's, um, like, it's something that really comes of the time. Like, from, from this point on, actually, like, from the 
like mid 70s to the early 80s you really got that technicolor bloody you know vibrancy that comes out well, especially is, in well, Batgirl and Billy Kid. Well, this isn't technicolor. No, it isn't. It's metro color. Yeah, it's it's technically <laughs> different, but but it does have that same like yeah, no, you know, hue. Yeah. Um which I I like actually. Like I don't mind any film that has that sort of hue to it cuz it's uh, it's nostalgic and I think it works and you know even though realistically that's not true to what would have happened i like that element to it just because it's you know exaggerated and 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 i i think it's fun it's fun really like in this case you talked about the the shotgun not the shotgun but the the rifle with the the dimes in it yeah it's a shotgun yeah it's it is a, double, a shotgun. Yeah, double barrel shotgun that's filled with dimes and that's like a super comical scene like it shouldn't really work it, it it's a ridiculous I scene i mean uh... I think if you haven't really watched older films, you might like, and you just like, you might think it's comical. I think it's really good. In fact, I think it's pretty like the fact they were actually able to get a slow cap shot. Yeah, they were, and, yeah. And it's not really super slow, but it's a nice slow cap shot. Watching the dimes fly out, you don't really, you don't get to see the impact really of the dimes because then it goes to uh, the deputy, and you see it like from you don't you don't see his front, you just see his back. So you just because they're not going to be able to show the dimes hitting them, so you see his body get jilted by it and then but the squibs you know and the blood that gets blown out from his back you know that's that's awesome it's like a good yeah you know that's you know it's a good touch i like i like it it's definitely this film has something for everybody if you're looking for nudity you've got some nudity if you're looking for some violence you got some violence sometimes even more than the spaghetti western would have and all around i would say this is pretty much more violent than yeah you're yeah but then again like i said the wild bunch is that's you know what it made its bones on is What's well known? I mean, not just because it's also a great western, but also because how of how violent it was. Yeah. Um, but no, I I really I really appreciate you know the use the liberal use of squibs. It's almost like they saw you know Sonny getting shot in The Godfather, and some studio execs like, God damn it, we gotta have more. You know, yeah. that's you know, <laughs> increase the violence in this film. Yeah. All right. Do you want to rate Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid? Sure. On a scale of one to ten, coffee ground filled <laughs> coffee mugs. What would you, what would you what would you give Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid? I'll give it an eight and a half. All right. Um, I really like this movie a lot. Um, it's probably one of the reasons why we're doing it. It's an actual su- suggestion for me. Um, I think James Coburn is really good. I like James Coburn. I've always been a pretty big fan of him. Um. I think he does a really good job as Pat Garrett. He's very just cal- cold, calculating, and I appreciate his uh, how methodical he is and how he portrays the role. And you don't get to, you know, we get to see it, his, you know, how calculating he is. The film doesn't waste time exposing. Nothing in this film is exposited to you except... A little bit of the friendship between Pat and Billy. The rest of it's all just great visual storytelling from the shots and how the actors interact with one another and the story, um, how it plays out. I think it's really good. I think the Christopherson's kind of miscast, uh, but I think he does do a pretty decent, okay job. But I think Bob Dylan, as an actor in this film, is totally pointless. And great for some brevity, unintentional brevity. Um, I think the ensemble cast is terrific. 
it's a who's who of Western, you know, elites. Um, settings beautiful, gorgeous. Yeah. Um, the violence is great. It's a simple, easy story. And I love the soundtrack. Like I said, I think Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is Bob Dylan's most underrated album, and that's coming from a huge Dylan fan. Yeah. So I would give probably give it eight and a half. It's one of my favorite westerns of all time. I would give it a, probably an eight. I thought it was a really enjoyable film experience. Um, definitely a good western. Slightly different from what you would consider like a spaghetti western of the time. You definitely can see some of the the differences, not just between like how it was shot and everything and, and the locales, but but also just like the the way that they approach the storyline. Like you said, this is a very simple storyline. It doesn't really. It's not a sprawling plot. It's it literally for almost the entire film is just a chase scene between Billy the Kid and Pat Garrett and they how they come together. Uh, however, I do like how it splits off between the two of them to kind of show their characters within their own separate realms. So you have Pat Pat Garrett within his like sheriff's realm, and then you have Billy the Kid within his outlaw realm, and how they they kind of work together to co- to come together and and how that theme really fits in with the the film. Um, I think that I would say that the film is at an hour and 55 minutes with what we watch as a special, uh, special edition cut of this film. Uh, it works pretty well. I think it's, you know, I don't know that I would cut a lot from this. Um, there are a couple scenes, as you mentioned, like alias as a character, which doesn't really fit within the, the plot itself. But, um, I guess it makes sense within the context of just having more characters in there that are close to Billy the Kid. Um, but I wouldn't really cut anything out from this film. Um, I think the the soundtrack is good from Bob Dylan. Um, I still prefer Ennio Morricone. That's just my own, you know, opinion. Take it for what it's worth. Um, but I do think that it's a it's a good soundtrack. Not Gonna Heaven's Door is used pretty well within this film. Um you know, in, in different occasions with different parts of the soundtrack, the song itself. So it, it works really well. And, uh, I think that for the most part, like this is a good mix of violence, somewhat humorous kind of, uh, distraction from the, from the seriousness of the plot. And then towards the end of the film, during the conclusion, a really enjoyable, sort of emotional moment where the two come together and they kind of have their climax, even though it's what I would consider sort of an anti-climax. Like it's not really climactic in the sense that you're thinking of. Well, it has one of those traditional old school film endings. Yeah. Film just ends. Yeah, basically. Yeah. There's no like, there's no like, um, super serious face off or things like that, but it's, it's a very, um, hefty climax one that really like weighs on you as it as it happens so i think that's probably one of the film's most important contributions is that 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 ending really fits within the the film's theme well and and it comes to a satisfying conclusion maybe not one that you know um has like an action-packed finale but a satisfying one i still think like as we said earlier if they took the prologue and put it at the end that would probably would have been the best instead of making ma- instead of making it a flashback, and then it you know it makes sense like you can yeah. just have the film end with like it looking over Garrett's dead body. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Me too. All right. So, uh, what are we doing next week? 
Not, uh, not next week, but uh, the next, next episode in two weeks. Well, not Infinity War because yeah, won't... that's the next probably the next next one. Um, I don't know. I don't have a I don't have a uh, a film picked out yet. Do you have a style that you'd like to do? A genre? Okay. I'll leave it up. I'll, I'll pick two genres. And, okay. Right. Um, yeah. Have you decide? Okay. Do you want me to say it right now? Yeah. Or? Go ahead. Go ahead. Black exploitation, okay, or a Jello, okay, all right. Maybe I'll do you one better and combine Fine. the two. No, <laughs> that thing. Um, not really. I'm saying I don't. Th- really. I don't think the Italians yeah. are well known for casting black actors. No, yeah, not really. But uh, yeah, so, or right, so or, we'll... or a Saxony film. Oh, a Saxon. Yeah, yeah. we could do that. We could... I have something for that. So, yeah. all right. So uh, we'll. Uh... We'll leave it at that for now. We haven't picked a film, but we'll come back. Um, thank we'll, you for listening. To, we'll do the Twitter poll again. That's true. Yeah, we could do a Twitter poll. Thanks for listening to our Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid uh, episode. I know that's not one that's like people are like raving about, like want to hear about, but well, what we, we it is definitely a, a cult film, a cult classic. And well, we do want to do the do the films that not everyone has seen. Yeah, that does an you know, opinion. There's no point in us being like, let's do the good and the bad and the ugly. Right. Or what? As much as I would love for us to do Once Upon a Time in the West, it's almost like, well, what else can you say? Right. Yeah. Yeah, we like to do the ones that haven't been talked about, you know. As much. As much as, you know, some of the other movies have, so. Hence our first episode being Man Pride and Vengeance. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. So, uh, thanks for listening. We are on podbean itunes and any other podcasting app that you listen to make sure you subscribe and follow us on there and leave us a nice review uh we are on facebook at facebook.com slash blood and black rum podcast we also have a twitter account at blood and black rum you can always find us on our uh, main page at coltsploitation.com and as always you can email us at blood and black rum podcast at gmail.com let us know what you want to hear on the episode any movies that you want us to cover and we certainly will take that into consideration thank you for listening we'll see you back in two weeks for our next episode take care bye